Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description. Hello, and welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. On today's episode, we will be discussing Game of Thrones, Season 1, Episode 2, The King's Road. This episode was written by David Benioff and D.B. Wise. They adapted it from George R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones and is directed by Tim Van Patten. It premiered April 24, 2011 and had a viewership of 2.20 million people watching. A brief synopsis, Bran's fate remains in doubt. Having agreed to become the king's hand, Ned leaves the north with his daughters Sansa and Arya, while Catelyn stays behind to tend to Bran. Jon Snow heads north to join the Brotherhood of the Night's Watch. Tyrion decides to forego the trip south with his family, instead joining Jon and the entourage heading to the Wall. And Viserys bides his time in hopes of winning back the throne, while Danny focuses her attention on learning how to please her new husband, Drogo. And I just want to give a brief reminder before diving into the episode proper. I just want our listeners to know that in this series, each episode will be two parts. The first part will focus on the HBO series, and the second will be a book comparison. Obviously, at a certain point, the show completely divorces itself from the books. And with the book series unfinished at the time of this recording, Ashley and I will be giving our speculations and theories about where the books are going. Also, after recapping the episode, Ashley and I will engage in a full spoiler discussion involving later episodes and seasons of the show, as well as materials from the book. We will alert you when we have reached the full spoiler section, so if at that point you want to skip to the end of the podcast, we understand. And finally, if you are unaware, Game of Thrones has a much more violent and adult-themed world than Once Upon a Time. We will be discussing subjects which some may find triggering and inappropriate for young listeners. And lastly, I just want to give a special shout out to gameofthrones.fandom.com slash wiki. I use this website to form my notes for the scene-by-scene recap, and I just wanted to give credit where credit was due. So let's dive into the episode. (laughs) So we start off with scene one. The Dothraki Kalasar, led by Khal Drogo, has departed Pentos and are heading east into the Dothraki Sea towards Vase Dothrak. Sir Joram Mormont tells Daenerys she needs to drink and eat. When she asks him if there is nothing new she can eat, Jorah tells her the Dothraki have two things in abundance, horses and grass, and that you can't survive on grass. My first note here is that this episode takes its name from the King's Road, a massive road which runs from the wall to Storm's End, and the royal party travels down this road in this episode. Yeah, I don't really have any notes for this. Okay. In scene two, as the Kalasar makes camp, Jorah tells Viserys he can still stay at Pentos as Illyrio's guest. 
Uh, Viserys, however, insists on staying with the Dothraki until uh, Drogo fulfills his promise and gives Viserys a crown. Viserys then asks Jorah what he did to be exiled, and Jorah tells him he sold poachers on his land to a slaver. Viserys, mildly amused, tells Jorah that under his reign, he wouldn't be punished for such nonsense. You know, and specifically, it's Ned Stark that wants him beheaded, basically, for... Yeah. Yeah, for... If you're you're unaware, uh, House Mormont is a northern house, and Ned Stark, or the Starks in general, are their lords, their liege lords. Yeah, Viserys specifically asked, like, what did Stark want you for? Because it is Stark that wanted it. Like, no one else really cares, as we'll see in later... Hmm. episodes and in the book chapters that no one else necessarily cares as much as ned does that well ned's a man of great honor yes jorah broke the law and he has to pay the price for it also i i find it interesting in this world that's built by george r R. martin how in one way westeros is advanced beyond essos like they don't have slaves slavery is illegal in westeros now, they do have indentured servitude and all that, a feudal system, which one could argue is a form of slavery. However, slavery is illegal in Westeros, whereas it's legal in Essos, but every other way, Essos seems to be more advanced than Westeros. Like they have the, the different city states have cultural blending, there's, you know, exchange of goods and everything. It, it, it's yeah. just a, this interesting dichotomy that in one specific factor, Westeros is more advanced and Besides that, it seems like Essos is more advanced in everything else. Yeah, that's pretty true. We move on to scene three. Joffrey and the Hound find his uncle Tyrion asleep in the dog's pen of Winterfell and tell him they will be riding back to King's Landing later that day. Tyrion tells Joffrey that before departing, he must offer his condolences to Lord and Lady Stark following Bran's fall. When Joffrey asks what good his sympathies will do, Tyrion says that it is expected of him and that his absence has already been noted. Joffrey refuses, so Tyrion slaps him. Joffrey threatens he will tell his mother if Tyrion strikes him again, which Tyrion says is fine so long as he goes to Lord and Lady Stark first. When Joffrey goes to speak, Tyrion hits him again and orders Joffrey to see them. Joffrey runs off frightened. The Hound then tells Tyrion that Joffrey will remember that, and Tyrion agrees. What kills me about this scene in both the show and the books, like reading it, it's, it's very okay, but Cersei didn't send him to freaking do this already. Like, mm-hmm. it's only proper that he goes and does this. Like, he is the prince and like Cersei or Robert didn't haven't already been like, yo, go, go like give your sympathies already. Like, well, I would say just to play devil's advocate, Robert doesn't care about formalities and all that there and cersei is heavily distracted at this moment wondering if bran's gonna die or not and if he doesn't die what he's gonna do when he wakes up so maybe her mind's not in the right place i don't know but just by like how it's worded it seems like the younger kids probably already went and gave their sympathies because yeah. it's not well like, on this sorry go ahead and you know of course they did because marcella and Tommen wouldn't Right. You know, they probably were like dragged along with Cersei or like their septa. You know, too, we get in later seasons, um, well, not in later seasons, in later episodes, 
it sort of seems like Cersei always chooses to see the best in Joffrey, regardless of what's really there. So perhaps she thought he would go on his own already to do it, whereas maybe she had the other children go because she's more heavily involved with their daily activity. Yeah, because they're younger. Mm -hmm. I suppose that could be true. But moving right along, we get to scene four, and Tyrion breaks his fast with Jaime, Cersei, uh, Marcella, and Tommen. Marcella asks if Bran will die, and Tyrion delivers the news that Maester Lewin thinks that Bran will live. Jaime and Cersei share worried glances. Cersei changes the topic of conversation to Tyrion, who intends to venture north to see the wall. Cersei doesn't understand why he wants to go, and Tyrion asks where her sense of adventure is. Jaime asks Tyrion if he intends to quote-unquote take the black, but Tyrion assures him otherwise, as going celibate would quote, make the whores go begging from Dorne to to Casterly Rock. And Tyrion says that he just wants to stand up atop the wall and quote-unquote piss off the edge of the world. I love Tyrion. I love Tyrion so much, too. Marcella and Tommen find this funny, but Cersei sends them away, telling Tyrion children don't need to hear his filth. Cersei leaves with them. Jaime tells Tyrion that even if Bran does wake, he will be a cripple, and he says he would rather be dead than that, and Tyrion disagrees. That's a good scene between them. You get the brotherly love. You get a lot of family dynamic there because like the children love their uncle Tyrion, even mm. if like Cersei is like, ugh. Agreed. And who wouldn't, you know, Tyrion's funny. He's clever. Who wouldn't love him? It's just this cruel world that he was born into. We're being a dwarf. I mean, I guess I can understand Cersei's hatred of him because their mother died giving birth to Tyrion. But I mean, you got to move on. It wasn't Tyrion's fault. Like... You know, he was just born. But we get a lot of characters that uh, hate children because of their mothers for no real good reason. That we do. Yeah. Speaking of, so in scene five, Cersei visits Catelyn Stark, who is sitting by Bran's bedside. Cersei tells Catelyn she lost her first son to a fever. She describes him as a black-haired beauty, a bird without feathers. She prayed for him every night, but he died all the same. Cersei tells Catelyn she prays for Bran and hopes that this time the gods will hear. It's, a, it's kind of an interesting scene because uh, when Cersei enters, Catelyn tries to do the nobility thing. Like she like stands up and everything. Cersei's like, no, 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 it's your home. Like be comfortable. Like it's, it's kind of a nice scene between the two of them, honestly. Yeah, considering it's Cersei that put her child in this position to begin with, basically. Like- yeah. And there's a lot of people that had a problem with the, this storyline of Cersei having a child, um, or this child specifically. We'll discuss that maybe in the full spoiler section or maybe in our book section, but we can talk about that later. So in scene six, Jon Snow has Winterfell's blacksmith, Mikan, forge a white sword for his sister, Arya. As he watches it being forged, Jaime Lannister arrives and taunts him about his decision to join the Night's Watch reminding him that if he changes his mind, it's only for life. This is an interesting uh, interaction as well, because, you know, Jamie Lannister is a, a knight of the Kingsguard, which is essentially the same thing. Yeah, also a very for life. Yeah. It, I, you know what it is? It doesn't have the same honor, like taking the black 
yeah. doesn't take, have the same honor because anybody can take the black, really. Well, Not that, everyone can be a king's guard. That that's true. I hadn't considered that. Also, we find out that the Night's Watch is mostly criminals nowadays, whereas, yeah. like you said, the King's Guard is a high honor. And I guess too, you could argue, even though they basically have to follow the same rules, you know, don't get married, don't have children. At least if you're in the King's Guard, for the most part, you're going to be somewhere nice. Like, you know, you might have to make trips with the kid, but, you know, King's Landing Yeah, you're is... going to be warm. Yeah. You're gonna, you can dress fine if that's what you want. So, like, right. you're usually wearing your King's Guard armor, but, like, Jamie can dress how he wants realistically. Yeah. I guess there's enough uh, things that being enough It's slightly different... cushier than being a member of the Night's Watch. Yeah. Say. There we go. So we move on to scene five, where John knocks on Arya's door and tells her he has a present but that she must shut the door and make sure no one is around. He then gives her the sword, telling her to be careful as it is no toy. Arya comments on how skinny it is, and John lets her hold it and asks if she likes it and is comfortable with the balance of it before telling her the first lesson of sword fighting. Stick them with the pointy end, he says. Arya tells them she knows which end, end to use. John says goodbye before asking what she will call the blade. Arya names it Needle. And I guess we could talk more about this scene in our book discussion as well. Yeah, I think it's more interesting in the book discussion. Though I do think Nymeria helping Pack is cute and funny. That, yeah, you're right. I, I left that out of my summary, but that that is a very yeah, cute Nymeria scene. Yeah, Nymeria was like picking up stuff and like sticking it in the suitcase. Yeah, <laughs> but but then when uh, John arrives and Arya's trying to show it off, Nymeria doesn't do won't, it. Won't do it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So we move on to scene eight where John visits Bran, who is still comatose, and finds Catelyn by his bedside. He tells her he just wants to say goodbye, but she cuts him off and says that he has already said it. Catelyn tells him to leave. John ignores her and talks to Bran, telling him that he will be taking the black and he won't be at Winterfell when Bran wakes up. Once more, Catelyn tells him to leave. John obeys just as Eddard walks in the room, and he says his farewells to Bran. So, oof, Catelyn. Yeah, she is needlessly aggressive in this scene. Yeah. You got to give it up for, um, oh, I can't remember her name now, the actress that plays Catelyn, but she really, yeah. she brought across uh, Catelyn's hatred for John in their very few scenes together. And like, you know, Eddard's there at the end of the scene, but like, he's also leaving. And so she's like, not happy that he's leaving as well. Like, yeah you're he, right she does beg him to stay yeah and he's like no i already said yes duty and honor i gotta go man like i'm <laughs> out <laughs> mm-hmm. bye so in scene nine john and rob say farewell rob tells john the next time he sees him he will be all in black john quips and says that it was always always his color it's a very nice scene between the two of them you got the brotherly love yeah and that that's pretty much it moving right along I don't want to get into spoilers until the full spoiler section, but I have a lot of opinions about these different scenes. So in scene 10, the party is right out of Winterfell, the Starks, the Lannisters, and the Baratheons traveling down the King's Road to the capital, while Tyrion, Jon, and Benjen turn north towards the Wall. Before leaving him, Eddard tells Jon that it is a great honor to serve in the Night's Watch and that the Starks have manned the Walls for thousands of years. Eddard reminds him that although he may not carry his name, 
he carries his blood. And when Jon Snow asks who his mother is, Eddard promises to tell him about her the next time that they meet. <sighs> In scene 11. <laughs> you know, I do yes. have one thing to say. Yeah. That was the most emotionless goodbye to a father and a son you could ever see. You think so? Yeah, I didn't like, I personally was like, you almost want more out of it, but it's like, <clears throat> nope, that's just it. Goodbye. Well, I think Sean Bean conveys the sadness in Eddard Stark very well in this scene. He, you know, he kind of breaks up a little bit when he's like saying, you know, the next time, next time I see you, I, I'll tell you about your mother, I promise. And we know where these characters are headed. You know, uh, Eddard, yeah. Eddard Stark doesn't know where he's headed. And we'll get to that in the spoiler section. But yeah, in scene 11, the royal party rests beside the king's road. Robert Baratheon comments on how beautiful the countryside is and reminisces on his youth when he grew up with Eddard. Robert recalls the many prostitutes he slept with and asks Eddard for the name of his bastard's mother. Eddard tells him it was Wyla, and Robert claims that she must have been some quote-unquote rare wench for Eddard to forget his honor. When the king asks more about him, Eddard refuses to tell. Robert then changes the subject and informs Eddard that his spies have learned that Daenerys Targaryen has married Khal Drogo, whose Kalasar is reported to be over 100,000 warriors. Eddard points out that the Dothraki cannot cross the narrow sea as they have no ships, but Robert is concerned that the Seven Kingdoms will soon face another war. And my only note for the scene is this is the first mention of Wyla, the alleged mother of Jon Snow. Yes. Yes, and there's much to discuss about her in, in the book discussions. But, that is true. <laughs> yeah. So, and we move on to scene 12. Drogo enters his tent to pay Daenerys a visit. He violently takes her from behind while she is distraught, only finding solace in the sight of Illyrio's gift, the dragon eggs. Let's just move right along. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing really to say about yeah. that at all. Yeah. In scene 13, Benjen, Tyrion, and Jon have stopped to make camp for the night on their way north to the Wall. New men have joined their company, most prominently a character who's not named right now, but it will be named in later episodes, Rast, and he is played by Luke Barnes. Tyrion explains that they are rapists, whose lords made them choose between castration or joining the Night's Watch, and Tyrion explains that most would rather face the knife. And this goes back to what we were discussing before, that the Night's Watch has kind of become criminals, which it, it kind of makes sense for the society because you're sending them off to do something and it's so far remote from everything else that, you know, you don't really have to worry about these criminals. And even if they do run from the wall and leave, then they get killed. So it's kind of a set system for them. Yeah. Jon Snow asks why Tyrion reads so much, to which Tyrion tells him to look at him and say what he sees. John doesn't understand. Tyrion tells John he is a dwarf, and had he been born a peasant, he would have been left in the woods to die. But instead, he was born a Lannister of Casterly Rock, and that his father was Hand of the King for 20 years. John reminds him that his brother killed that king, and Tyrion adds that his sister married the new king, and his nephew will be the next king. Tyrion then explains that while Jaime has his sword, Tyrion has his mind. 
And he says, a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone, which is true. Read more people. (laughs) And then Tyrion asks Jon to tell his story before reading him and describing a bastard boy with nothing to inherit, off to join the ancient order of the Night's Watch. When Jon tries to say that the Night's Watch protects the realm, Tyrion interrupts, denying the existence of Grumpkins, Snarks, and other monsters his wet nurse told him about. Tyrion tells Jon that he is smart enough not to believe in that before offering some wine. So I have a note for this scene, and it says that Tyrion says his father, Tywin Lannister, was hand to the king for 20 years, to which Jon responds until your brother killed that king. This is actually a condensed version of what happened. Tywin was hand for 20 years, but he resigned in protest a few years before the rebellion started due to unpleasantries between him and Ares regarding Joanna, Tywin's wife, and Jamie, Tywin's son. So he wasn't actually hand of the king when Ares died. Following Tywin's resignation, four people served as Ares' hand. Owen Merriweather, John Connington, we'll be talking about him in our book discussions a lot, Fulton Chelstead, and Rosart. This is not a difference between the books and the TV series. The characters are just speaking loosely. Other references of these events in the TV show continuity specify that Tywin resigned just before the rebellion. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. When it comes to the TV show, it's just easier to cut out a lot of these characters anyway, so. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, if you're going to cut it, cut them out or condense them down, give their storylines to other people. Like, really, Tywin being hand or not doesn't really change the outcome. It kind of changes, like, a little bit, but it doesn't really, like, mess with it so much, I don't think. I don't know. If Tywin had actually been hand during Robert's Rebellion, I think we could have had a vastly different outcome to the war. Yeah, I suppose that's true. They also, they didn't put in this note, they just mentioned... I guess this isn't spoiler. Maybe it's a little spoiler area, but Ares, and if it is, if you think it is, I'll cut it out. Ares sort of violated Joanna, Tywin's wife, and then named Jamie to the King's Guard. So, like, Jamie, who was Tywin's heir, can't inherit and can't have children and everything. Yeah. Uh, they'd failed to mention that Tywin wanted uh, Rhaegar to marry Cersei which was another insult that Tywin felt he suffered at, at Ares's uh, hand. Yeah. So moving right along to scene 14, Maester Lewin enters Bran's chambers where Catelyn sits and informs her that Winterfell's accounts need reviewing, along with many other pressing matters. Rob offers to help before asking his mother when the last time she left Bran's room was. Catelyn tells him that Bran needs her, Rob tells her that Bran won't die as Lewin thinks the worst has passed. Rob reminds her that she has another son, Rickon, who is only six and also needs her. As the wolves howl outside, Catelyn shouts at Rob to close the windows. As he does so, he sees a fire and rushes off, telling his mother he will be back. After a moment passes, Catelyn turns and notices another man standing in the room, an assassin, portrayed by Lelor Roddy. The assassin says that she isn't supposed to be there, that nobody is, and that Bran is almost already dead, so it would be a mercy to kill him. The assassin lunges to attack Bran, 
but Catelyn attempts to fight him off. She almost succeeds until he puts the knife at her throat. Just then, Bran's direwolf jumps onto the assassin and tears his throat out. That's a lot to the scene. Yeah, it's a very long scene and very, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, and it, it, in the books, it plays much more heavily than it does in the show. It leads to some things in the show, but not the conspiracy that there is in the books. But also, I just really like this interaction where Rob is becoming the Lord of Winterfell. Like, you know, Maester Lewin's yeah. tr- trying to get Catelyn to go over the numbers and make appointments to people that left with uh, Eddard. And she's like, no, I don't care. And then Rob just shows up and he's like, I'll do it. Like, you know, I, I got this. Don't worry. I'm probably too young to be doing this and my mom should be helping me. But, you know, yeah, she's got other business. Well, so, Also, so, I feel bad for Rickon. Yeah. Well, s- certainly, too. I mean, this is another difference between them. The All the characters are aged up for the show, but not in a consistent manner. Because I think Rickon is four in the books, but he's six here. No, he's like two or three in the books. He's, okay. I remember reading that, yeah. And then Bran is 10 on the show, but I think he's seven in the books. And Rob and John are 15, and I guess they're 20 in, in the show. Like, I, I don't really know. 18, I really 20? don't think they're supposed to be that old. Like, no. No. Like, I think they look older than they're actually supposed to be. I don't think they're supposed to be in their 20s. Maybe it's the facial hair. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. But 18, I'll I'll give them at at the youngest. Also, I'm going to be right back. Okay, go ahead. I don't know what Hades is up to, but Hades was playing in a box, so it's fine. But I heard him rubbing on stuff, and I was like, I don't know what you're doing. And for our listeners, he discovered the top of the fridge exists today. So I was like, Um, oh, I don't know what that crazy cat is doing right now. That's a big day in a cat's world. Yes. So I'm like, uh, and that's where we keep his treats and stuff. So he's discovered the hiding spot. Yeah. When Pumpkin discovered he can jump on top of uh, my kitchen counters. And then I also have those windows that go alongside mm-hmm. them and he could walk across those. Oh boy, was he ever happy. <laughs> he was like, oh, this is, this is my world now. I live up here. But moving back into the episode. In scene 15, Daenerys asks her handmaidens if they have ever seen dragons, but Eerie, played by Armida Archina, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, I apologize, tells her that brave men killed them all. Jinqui, played by Sarita Pitotrowski, agrees with her. Dorea, played by Roxanne McKee, tells a different story that the moon is an egg that hatches dragons when it collided with another moon and it opened, letting dragons out. They drank up the sun's fire. Eerie and Jiqui both disagree as they believe the moon is a goddess, wife to the sun. Eerie leaves and Daenerys asks Dorea about her past. She explains that she worked in a brothel from the age of nine, but didn't touch a man for the first three years. Daenerys asks if Dorea can teach her how to make Cal Drogo happy, to which her handmaiden agrees. When Danny asks her if it'll take three years, Dorea assures her it will not. Moving right along, we get to scene 16, where Jon, Benjen, and Tyrion crest a hill and see the imposing wall in front of them. Benjen welcomes them, while Jon and Tyrion look on in awe. It is kind of interesting to think about this would be the first time that they see it, given I think it's 700 feet tall, 
and 300 miles yeah. wide. You would think uh, you'd see it from pretty far away, but they got pretty close before they first saw it. Yeah, but you know, you need an epic scene, that kind of thing. True. In scene 17, Catelyn visits the Broken Tower in Winterfell, where Bran fell from and enters it, reaching the floor that Bran had climbed to. On the floor, she finds a strand of long blonde hair. So, bum bum bum, whose hair could that be? In, in scene it's eight, the North, they don't have a lot of blonde people. No, no, they do not. In scene 18, in the Godswood, Catelyn meets with Rob, Theon Greyjoy, Lewin, and Sir Roderick Cassell. She tells them she believes Bran was thrown from the tower, and Lewin adds that he was always sure footed. Catelyn questions why someone would want to murder an innocent child, theorizing he saw something that he wasn't meant to see. When Theon asks what it could be, Catelyn suspects that the Lannisters are involved, as she already has a reason to suspect that they are disloyal to the crown. Rob and Theon suggest war, but Lewin quickly shuts them down and says that they must inform Eddard, though Catelyn tells him she fears a message could be intercepted. Rob offers to ride south to King's Landing, but Catelyn reminds him that there must always be a Stark in Winterfell and offers to go herself, which there would still be, uh, you know, Bran and Rickon. Yeah, yeah, but but, eh. I get her point, though. Yeah, agreed. And then Rob objects, but Catelyn insists and organizes for Roger Cassell to join her alone on the road. When Rob asks her about Bran, Catelyn tells him that she prayed to the gods for more than a month, and Bran's life is in their hands. I like how quickly we switch from like her being like, I can't leave Bran to be like, well, gotta go, bye. Yeah, she's a complex character to say the least. This scene is a, a slightly different in the books. I do like, though, how Lewin just shuts down Rob and Theon about the war immediately, like because they're both just these young men that are like have heard these stories of great. Let's go, we gotta yeah. go take down the Lannisters. And yeah. Lewin's like, we can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Like, like oh, hear you- yourselves, we can't do that. Yeah, he's uh the Alfred of this universe. <laughs> like, he takes care of them and makes sure that pretty they're much not- every maester is like that. Like, yeah, it's a bunch of Alfreds being like, but can we do that? Yeah. So moving right along to scene 18, Daenerys is in her tent with Dorea, who is teaching her how to please Drogo in bed. She tells her that love is in the eyes. When Daenerys worries Drogo won't like it with her on top, Dorea tells Daenerys she must make him like it, and that men want what they've never had. She tells Daenerys that she is no slave. She must not make love like one. Truth. Oh, yeah. She is a Khaleesi. Yeah. And just as a man, I could say that's also true. Uh, men always want what, they, what they've never had. Uh, not to, you know, berate my gender or anything, but it's true. <laughs> uh, for the most part, for the most part. In scene 19, much later, Drogo returns to his tent naked, ready to have sex with Daenerys. Before he can, she pushes him away, telling him in Dothraki that tonight she would look upon his face. Drogo is responsive as she begins to straddle him and speak his language. Not much to the scene, but, you know, it's kind it's of... It's just re- her taking control, probably for, like, one of the first times in her life, realistically. Yeah, it's her first power Taking play. her own destiny, mm-hmm. as it were. Agreed. Uh, we move on to scene 20, and the royal party has stopped at the inn in the crossroads en route to King's Landing. 
Sansa makes her way through the camp and encounters Sandor Clegane, who seems to intimidate her. Sansa apologizes for offending him and asks why Sir Illyn Payne, played by Wilco Johnson, who is also present, doesn't talk to her. Sander tells her that his tongue was ripped out with hot pincers by the Mad King. Joffrey arrives and tells her that he speaks with his sword, telling her that he is the royal executioner. Joffrey realizes she is worried and offers to take her on a walk through the countryside. What a good guy, that Joffrey. Taking care of his woman. Yeah. You know, she's just got to stand by her man no matter what. I totally think not going to go poorly in the next scene at all. Everything's going to work out for these kids. You know, good yep. for them. We move on to scene 21. Arya is practicing sword fighting with Micah, played by Rodri uh, Hoskins, the butcher's boy, besides a river with wooden blades when Joffrey and Sansa appear. Arya tells them to go away as Joffrey approaches and asks who Micah is. After finding out who he is, Joffrey mocks him for wanting to be a knight and asks to see how good he is. Micah, worriedly, tells Joffrey that Arya asked him to fight her, mistakenly calling him my lord. Joffrey corrects him and repeats the order to pick up his sword. When Micah tells him it's only a stick, Joffrey reminds him that he isn't a knight. Arya yells at him to stop, but Sansa warns her to stay out of this. Joffrey promises not to hurt Micah much, then slowly cuts a gash along Micah's chin. Arya lunges and smacks Joffrey with her stick, who strikes for her with his sword while Micah runs. Sansa hysterically demands that they stop when Joffrey gets Arya on the floor, waving his sword in her face. Arya's wolf, Nymeria, jumps and bites Joffrey's wrist, sending him to the floor. Arya then picks up Joffrey's sword and throws it into the river. While Arya runs away with Nymeria, Sansa approaches Joffrey and offers to help him when he abruptly demands that she leave and not to touch him. So Sansa got a little preview of what and who Joffrey really is. And it's not so much the... uh, physical violence that he suffered or the emotional violence it's uh that she saw who he really is and he can't stand that oh yeah 100 percent. he's embarrassed and like put off by her knowledge of who he is yeah when joffrey offers sansa more wine uh oh i have a note for this scene i should say um when joffrey offers sansa more wine she says that she shouldn't as her father only lets the children have a cup of wine at special feasts. In the books, during the feast at Winterfell, which happened in the last episode, Jon Snow is the POV narrator, and he notes that Ned Stark does indeed only let his children have a single cup of wine at feasts. In the books, Jon attends the feast for the king, but is instead seated somewhere else in the Great Hall. While the books note he usually sits at the table with his family, John is instead placed among the younger squires at the end of the Great Hall during this occasion. John doesn't mind, apart from the usual hurt at being rejected by Catelyn, because he is unsupervised due to not being at his father's table in this instance. He can drink as much wine as he wants and indeed gets rather drunk. However, his uncle Benjen later catches him drunk in this chapter. So moving right along, in scene 22, in the woods, Lannister soldiers are hunting Nymeria. Arya is hidden, desperately telling her dire wolf to leave. When Nymeria won't go, Arya ends up throwing stones at her until she leaves. 
the Lannister soldiers close in on Arya. Sad scene. Yeah. And then in scene 23, Jory informs Eddard that Arya has been found and taken directly to the king. Arya quickly demands that they all get back to the inn, distrustful of the queen. In scene 24, Robert holds an audience and hears the different sides of the story. Cersei says that Arya and Micah beat Joffrey with clubs and set Nymeria on him, but Arya says that isn't what happened, calling Joffrey a liar. Robert asks where Sansa is, and Cersei reveals her, telling her to tell her, her side of the story. Sansa says that she can hardly remember what happened, to which Arya throws a tantrum. Cersei uses this, comparing her wildness to the dire wolf. Robert dismisses the case, knowing that children fight, but Cersei tells him Joffrey will bear these scars from the bite for the rest of his life. Robert mocks Joffrey for letting Arya disarm him and then tells Eddard to discipline his daughter. Eddard agrees, but Cersei wants action against the wolves. When a soldier informs them that there is no trace of the dire wolf, Cersei tells him that they have another wolf, meaning Sansa's wolf, Lady. Robert gives the command for Lady to be killed. Aelin Payne is assigned the honor by Cersei, but Eddard says that if it must be done, he would do it himself, as the wolf is of the north. He doesn't want the wolf to just be butchered, basically. Right. And the scene... It's more detail in the books about that, too, so we can get it into that in our book check, you know. I have a feeling we're going to be saying that a lot for the first three seasons or so, but yes. And it's a good scene, but moving right along, we get to scene 25... Uh, outside the inn, Eddard sees Sandor carrying a body on his horse. He asks him about the butcher's boy, and Sandor tells him that Micah ran, but not very fast. Eddard then finds Lady chained up and kills her with his dagger. People really <laughs> don't like kids in the show. No. This world is cruel to everyone. And then this goes right into scene 26, where in Winterfell, Bran opens his eyes. And that, I, I thought that was very nicely done, how they, you yeah. know, as soon as the wolf dies, boom. And in case anyone doesn't know this, the actor, I guess you would call them, that played Lady on the show was actually adopted by, um, what is her name? Sophie Turner, who plays Sansa. So they got to stick together. Oh, that's cute. In real life. Yeah. So do you have anything else you want to say, or should we move on to the full spoiler section? No, we section? can move into full spoilers. Okay, so this is a warning to any listeners that don't want to hear any possibility of spoilers for the season, the series, or the books. So here we go. I have a couple notes for this episode. They're mostly show-related. Um, the first one is a notable change from the books in is that the events at the Crossroad Inn actually happen at Castle Derry, a small holdfast south of the river. Renly Baratheon and Sir Barristan Selmy also first appear here in the books, journeying north with Sir Illyn Payne to meet the king's party. In the TV show, only Sir Illyn appears, and the other two remain in King's Landing until the third episode. According- I mean, I think it's a good, you know... Introducing too many characters at once all the time is right. And in the book, much in the book, the like one of the differences that stood out to me in that, um, I don't know what you want to say, courtroom scene where Robert was presiding 
was in the book, it's Renly that mocks Joffrey for being disarmed by a little girl and everything. Yeah. Um, not, not Robert, but it works for either character to do that. It does. Mm-hmm. According to the episode writer, Brian Cogman, episodes of Game of Thrones are only named late into production after principal photography is completed. The first title that Cogman, that Cogman pitched to David Benioff for this episode was A Dire Wolf is No Pet, which is a quote from the episode. Benioff responded by making Cogman promise that if he ever were to suddenly die, Cogman would never, under any circumstance, use the title A Dire Wolf is No Pet for any episode of the entire series. Ultimately, Cogman came up with The King's Road as the name of the episode. Think it's that bad of a like title for an episode? No, I I agree, and uh, you know it's interesting too. Yeah, we're in full spoilers, with the exception of Lady and what's Rob's direwolf's name? Um, gray uh-huh. Gray Wind. Yeah, um, with the exception of Lady and Gray Wind, we still have all of the other direwolves alive in the books um they most of them sadly pass away on the show but you know lady dying first there's a lot of theories about the connection between the starks and their dire wolves and sansa doesn't really develop the same sort of connection that all the other stark children get i mean we're in full spoilers so i guess i'll say the wolf dreams like all the other stark children have wolf dreams where they go into their wolves and dream of what they're doing. Sansa, however, has those weird dreams about being a bat, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. But, like, I think that's also, like, Sansa never treated, like, all the other children don't treat their wolves like dogs the way she treats hers like a dog more so. True. Yeah. She's training her more like a dog, which is why Lady is much more pleasant compared to the other ones generally. And her name is Lady. Yes. <laughs> like, like, actually, all of the dire wolves really in the books really reflect their stark counterpart well. Lady is a lady. Nymeria is tough and strong. Yep. Ghost, uh, you know, just f's off and does his own thing, like how John does. Gray when fights with Rob in battle when that eventually comes. Yeah. And Shaggy Dog gets angry like uh, Rickon does. And uh, I guess Bran and uh, Summer. Well, Summer, yeah, Bran and Summer are similar too, but I can't really think of a good example right now. No, I can't either. No, but um, my final note for this episode is that in the novels, Cersei never gave birth to a child of Robert. She told Eddard that she was once pregnant with a child of Robert's, but had the child aborted out of her for her hatred of Robert. Robert was unaware of both the pregnancy and the abortion. Cersei isn't simply lying in the episode to manipulate Catelyn, as in a later episode, The Wolf and the Lion, she discusses with Robert, their first child, who was black of hair like Robert. I feel like that's just because they don't try to make Cersei nearly as cruel as she is in the books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, she's crazy. I think they do try to give her more of like a compassionate side where I fully, but like it's way more believable that she just was like, yeet, abort this child. I hate Robert so much. He is the worst. Yeah. And 
when in later seasons, oh, you, this this happens. I forget whether it's in season six or seven, but they actually briefly show the Maggie the Frog prophecy in one of the episodes. Mm-hmm. They completely cut out the line about how many children she'll have and everything like that. Or they screwed it up somehow. I can't remember how. Maybe they said that she would only have three children. And that's where like the controversy comes in with this fourth child that she supposedly had. But yeah, there's a lot of conspiracies for... <laughs> have you ever seen the one that uh, Gendry is actually Cersei and Robert's child? No, but I'm pretty sure that's not true. Yeah, well, no, it's not. But, the, you know, people have a lot of different crazy yeah. conspiracies about the show. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss about this episode or? No, I think a lot of, I think we'll end up talking a lot of more stuff in our book discussion. So. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of scenes that are very similar, but play out differently. And like we said before, have a lot more detail in the book. So with that. A lot more context that I think we lose a lot of in the show. A lot of the time we lose underlying context. Yeah. Everything has to get simplified for the show. Yeah. And so with that, we'll go into the outro. Oh, but before we do, uh, anyone that stuck around by this point, I just want to ask, you know, I I had Ashley do the intros last week. I I just want to know if you guys like that or not. You know, you can tweet at us or Instagram us and let us know, because I'll be honest, this is uh, brutal on the old voice box doing doing all this talking. And uh, I can maybe switch on and off. Well, I... Yeah, I also just don't like when I'm editing the episodes, listening to how much I'm talking and how little you are. Like, I feel like the audience might think I'm overbearing on you or something like that. You, you, you can speak. You don't have, you don't have to stay quiet because now they're definitely going to think I'm overbearing. <laughs> <laughs> right, Jason you know. just won't let me talk. Yeah. No, thanks. It's not my fault. Well, I'm going to have to cut that now. I'll make that I'm a short. I'm not allowed to speak. Yeah. I'm I'm so cruel and vicious. Okay, well, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. Let's go into the outro. <laughs> that concludes this week's episode of the Once Again Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at onceagainpod, all one word. If you are feeling generous and would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod. Also, a like and a share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you.